0: Yo, what is going down, everybody? Welcome to Show Me The Meaning, Wisecracks Movie Podcast. Show Me The Meaning! I am Austin Hayden, and I'm joined by the Show Me The Meaning crew. We have Raymond. Hey, everybody. How's it going? And we've got Michael back with us. Hey, what's up? Two in a row. Apologies, everyone. (laughs) (laughs) And this week, we're going to be talking about the 2011, I guess we can call it a cult classic, right? Attack the Block. There's been a recent announcement that finally, after 10 years, the sequel that has been long awaited is in development, apparently. It will be helmed by Joe Cornish, the original writer and director, and it will star the original star that launched this star's career into the fucking stratosphere. That's called Alliteration, friends. Uh, John Boyega, who you all know from Star Wars and Disney fame now. And, uh, yeah, this is kind of the film that put him on the map when he was uh, a young actor in London. And so they're going to be doing a sequel. So we were like, well, shoot, why don't we jump into the original? It is a great film filled with all kinds of rich themes and... I'm sure we'll peel some of those things back, but it's also just a really cool, slick sci-fi and a great directorial debut from Joe Cornish as well. So we can talk about all those things, so we'll get there. It also has Jodie Whittaker in it, and Nick Frost makes an appearance, which um, I totally forgot that he was in, in this film. And um, a bunch of kind of unknown, non-professional actors playing um, the rest of the teenage gang that is helmed great, by... Great cast of all around. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So we'll get into that. But before we do First Impressions, I do want to kick it over to Michael because Michael has a little announcement about some other Wisecrack stuff that we got to plug here. So Michael, Oh, what's this
1: up? is huge, huge news, everyone. Um, If you like this podcast, there's a chance that you also watch a show called Rick and Morty. There's also a chance that you previously listened to the Wisecrack podcast, The Squanch, where we break down every episode of Rick and Morty. And want to let everyone know, The Squanch is back. We actually already recorded a preview episode um, with me, Ryan Haley, that you definitely know if you watch this, and Tommy Cook. So you can check that out right now. It's on all the streaming platforms and YouTube. And we will be uh, starting... Uh, the season this Sunday, June twentieth, and right after the first episode of Rick and Morty airs on East Coast time, we're gonna go live. So we'll be there. We got a, it's gonna be me, Ryan Haley, and a rotating cast of
0: geniuses this season. But it'll be fun. <laughs> yeah, that sounds good. That sounds actually more than good. I'm actually looking forward looking to forward that. to it. Yeah. All right, okay, so you know the deal. This is how we basically start off every episode. We go around, we get first impressions. Now, Michael and I were just talking off air, and we were like, oh, shoot, all we really remembered was that we enjoyed this film, but we don't really remember what we enjoyed about this film. So let's talk about first impressions. What was it like the first time we saw it, if we can remember it, even if it's just some sort of sense impression? And then what was it like revisiting this film? And let's start with Michael. Michael, so what was it like the first time that you watched Attack the Block?
1: You know, sometimes like you could go to a restaurant or something like that and you enjoy it. And then five years later, you're like, I'll go back there. But if I were to say, like, what dish did you like? What did it taste like? You would have nothing. But you would say, I just remember that I liked it. Sadly, that's me in this movie. (laughs) I think um, I saw it in theaters. Um, I saw it at a time where we're like, Austin, I was living in the United Kingdom, which always adds a little bit of extra flavor when you're watching a sort of lower budget UK film for thing. I remember liking it a lot. I remember thinking that Boyega ripped. Obviously, uh, watching uh, other British shows, I was a big big fan of Nick Frost and Jodie Whittaker. But I remembered liking it, not a lot else. Going back into it, um, I was surprised that I, A, still liked it a lot. And I think I uh, appreciated a lot of what the film was trying to say in ways that I'm not sure that I would have in 2011. Um, And I think... I, I found the context of the movie a lot more interesting. And I was even thinking about it in comparison to like Get Out and some other films that kind of explore ideas of, of race along with horror and sci-fi elements. Um, but liked it a lot. Made me more excited that a new one's coming out. And I definitely, all all in on this movie. If you haven't seen it, you should watch it. Um, not sure what we're all going to think. Not sure what we'll discuss exactly. But, but enjoyed it. Would go back to the restaurant.
0: <laughs> <laughs> all right, Raymond, what about you?
2: Uh, I really love this movie. Um, maybe, maybe similar to Michael, uh, I, I probably had a better recollection of the first time that I saw it. Uh, I really enjoyed it the first time around, but it wasn't until I watched it a second time a few years after that I remember thinking, like, no, this is a great fucking movie. Um, it's it, it's so it's so sharp, so well written. It it moves like a freight train and. When I was uh, watching it again this morning, I've seen it, you know, two or three times uh, since the first time I've watched it, and so I thought, I'll put on one of the, there are three commentaries on this Blu-ray, it's totally stacked, I I would check it out if you're a big fan of this movie, but... I put on one of the commentaries, uh, it's a, a really great conversation between Joe Cornish and Edgar Wright, and I was thinking to myself, I know this movie well enough, I could probably do a podcast about it without re-watching it, so let me just listen to what they have to say. And I was kind of stricken in a weird way that, like, with the, the uh, soundtrack for the movie dipped down so they could do the commentary track... I was kind of amazed as I was watching it because it's it, it is the rare contemporary film that y- this this is I I think something of a metric of success with a, a screenplay is that you can tell exactly what is happening in this movie, who these characters are, what they want, what they're trying to accomplish, what the relationship dynamics are to each other. Like you can turn the volume down and you get absolutely everything about this. It's not only. Not only great snappy dialogue, but it doesn't even need that. It's it's such great visual storytelling. You you know who these kids are from from the moment they show up and they look like trouble, and then throughout the rest of the movie, as you know the the hoods and the bandanas and all the layers, the, as all that stuff starts to come off, and you realize like these are just kids, you know, <laughs> like they're they're just out there getting into trouble, making mistakes, and just as I was thinking that, they say on the commentary that one one of the things um, Joe Cornish mentioned was that he thinks, or maybe it was Edgar Wright brought this up, that if these kids were eighteen years old, if they were all only two or three years older, the movie wouldn't work at all. You'd hate them because they have they they would they mm. would bear such a, a greater burden of responsibility for their actions at the beginning of the film, but. They, they just thread this needle so beautifully in this film. It's so well cast. It's so well written uh, and very, very wonderfully staged. I give it two thumbs up. I think it's phenomenal. Yeah, there's movie. that there's the, the one scene
0: where it. Moses uh, Samantha is going through Moses' apartment and she's like, you know, who lives here? And uncle comes and goes, blah, blah, blah. And then she's like, how old are you? And he's like 15. And you're like, oh, shit, okay. And he's probably the oldest of the gang, right? Or at least he's the most mature. There might be one or two of the others that are – but like – Like, Pest looks like he's, like, 13,
1: you know? Yeah. And that moment's so cool because when, when, you know, she says he's 15 and she's, like, you look older. And he's, like, thank you. Thank you. In this way where he's, like, yeah, I want to be old. I want to be whatever. But she says it with this tone of, like, oh, shit, like, you're a kid. Like, I've been looking at you as, you know, because there's a scene early on, I shouldn't get too much ahead of it, where Jodie Whittaker and her neighbor call the kids, like, fucking monsters. And they have early in the film, Whitaker agreeing with that at the end, her just being like, Man,
0: you're just a kid. And that mm. that reversal of the way in which she perceives them. Oh God.
1: But I'm getting ahead of it, sorry.
0: That's okay. Um Yeah, so my first impression, again, I actually very similar to Michael, I didn't really remember. I just remember this is one of those films that over the years, when people are like, when it comes up or when they mention John Boyega, I'm like, oh, did you ever see Attack the Block? I'm like, you gotta see Attack the Block. But I couldn't ever explain why. And they'd be like, why? And I was like, oh, it's you know, it's like it takes place in South London, and it's like these like uh, hoodlum kids, and they save the they save the neighborhood from aliens, and they're like okay, and I'm like no no no, but I'm like it's it's so much more than that, and it's really good, and it's it's really fast, and it's fresh, and all this stuff. So for me, it was always something that it was—it left an indelible mark, but I couldn't exactly describe what it was, at least at the level of content. And I actually think that's okay because reviewing, revisiting this film—like, yes, there's social commentary and there's things like that that I'm sure we're going to delve into. After all, the title of this podcast is "Show Me the Meaning," not "Let's just talk about whether or not we like this film." Um, so I'm sure we'll get into that. But, a cool title too. but when, <laughs> um, but the thing that struck whether or me not, more not than we anything, like this film. <laughs> The thing that struck me more than anything was the energy of this film. This film just has an energy. It gets in. It gets out. There is zero exposition about the aliens and their intention. I mean, there's the one bit about the moth, I guess, that you get at the end with the one guy, the stoner dude that's sitting there watching the the science show. But even that, it's not really exposition about who the aliens are and what they're doing. I mean, there's a little bit of speculation, I guess, but... They don't know. There isn't, like, government officials, like, we're under siege, you know, lock yourselves down, citizens, we have a plan, we're coming to the... There's none of that. It's literally just, like, this small, intimate, immersive um, story about what would happen in this area if some shit went down. And you just get these teenagers who are, at first, deemed to be the monsters, but then who encounter real monsters, who then become the heroes, right? And there – no, no, yeah. And so it's just this really kind of – I read this one little review and I won't say too much about it. We can talk about it on the other side of the synopsis where it was was more like a think piece where they were saying that what Joe Cornish does is he just totally saturates us in the world – uh, in a world that is unfamiliar, probably to not only international audiences but probably even to British audiences, the slang, the language, and there's no explanation of what those terms mean. They just are used over and over and over and over and over again. And by the end, you kind of you're like, "Oh, okay, I get it now." It's like um, it's like Rosetta Stone, the language program that just kind of is immersive, that just throws you into it, but it doesn't, like, translate it for you. And it's like traveling through a foreign world, and that I really love about it. You're just thrown into this city or into this block within this suburb, within this – or within this part of the city, and um, it's it, it's – doesn't have any sort of like meta commentary outside of it, so all the social commentary that we're deriving from it is something that is just experientially derived from these people. So, yeah, what were you gonna say, Raymond?
2: Oh, I was just gonna say on that on that note, um, Joe Cornish on the uh, behind the scenes feature uh, on the um, uh, on the Blu-ray, he's talking to one of the kids. I think the the kid that plays uh, Probs, and uh, the kid asks him, "Where'd you get the idea for this movie?" And Joe Cornish says, uh, have you seen the movie Signs with Mel Gibson and all the aliens and stuff? And the kid goes, yeah. He goes, well, I saw that movie. I really liked it. But I wanted to see what would happen if that movie happened to a uh, a, a housing block uh, where I live instead of out in a cornfield in the middle of nowhere. And he's going on and on. And he says, and the thing that really got to me about that, the thing that really excited me about the idea, and this was sort of what sparked uh Uh, This recollection for me, Austin, that you you sort of alluded to the fact that these are not the kids you anticipate to be the heroes of a movie like this. And he said, you know, I really liked the idea that all these kids that uh, people look down on or people are afraid of or that they, they don't take the time to try and understand if something really bad like this happened, they'd be the first ones on the front lines because they're, you know, they 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 are are the first people in like the classic 80s movie fashion. The kids are always the one to understand the premise of the movie before anybody else, and they're they're the ones with the like the vim and vigor to go do something about it. So, I uh, I I like this movie a lot.
0: All right, so the last thing that I'll say and then we'll just do a quick little recap of the film is I also heard that um, Joe Cornish was himself mugged in South London by a group of teens. And so uh, it was – this film kind of fell out of his imagination once he said he started to realize that these teens had a much richer inner life and social life than they're typically given credit for in the act of just being mugged. And he was like, okay. So I think there's something really interesting, and I guess there's an act of empathy there that maybe kind of explains why this film is so immersive and gives us just a tour through a foreign land. So anyway, I love this film. Um... And I'm glad that I loved it because I hate when you revisit a film and you loved it and you're like, oh man, it, I didn't love it. And then you've ruined the great the great viewing experience that you had the first time around. But so I love it. Okay, here we go. We'll do a quick recap and uh, and then we'll start peeling things back. So it's Guy Fox Night and trainee nurse Samantha Adams is mugged by a gang of teens in South London. When something falls from the sky and crushes a nearby car, Samantha escapes the leader of this little gang, Moses, checks out the crash site, hoping to find some valuables in the car, but an unfamiliar creature begins to attack him, scratch his face, and then runs away. The teens end up tracking the creature down and killing it. They take it to local drug dealer Hi-Hats in hopes that they can find a way to make some money and maybe some fame from killing this thing, selling it, whatever. And soon they learn that this creature is actually an alien and then more and more objects begin falling from the sky and they start to realize that it's a type of invasion. So the gang load up on some weapons and go to try to take more of these aliens out. But these new ones are much bigger and scarier so it's going to take a lot more than just beating it with a bat. Meanwhile, Samantha accompanies the police so that she can identify the muggers. They end up finding Moses and the gang, and Moses gets arrested, but while he's in the police van, an alien attacks the cops, which then lets Dennis, one of the other gang members, drive the van to safety, so with Samantha still in the van, but Samantha ends up fleeing, and the rest of the gang try to get to Wyndham Tower, and then Pest, one of the other gang members, he ends up getting bitten, and then they find out that Samantha lives in their building, but because they know that she's a nurse trainee, they get her to treat his injured leg, and then Samantha ends up deciding to join them to take down the aliens. Now, later they learn that the aliens are somehow attracted to Moses because of a little mark that has been placed on his jacket, and that they're going to keep coming after him and the gang, so they decide to form a plan to stop the aliens once and for all. Moses lures all the aliens into one apartment that's filled with gas, lights off some fireworks, and causes a massive explosion while he leaps to safety out of a window. Explosion kills all the aliens and leaves a huge portion of the building in flames. Afterwards, the cops come and arrest Moses and the surviving members of the gang, assuming them to be responsible for the deaths in the neighborhood and the damage caused. Samantha corrects the story, but they're still arrested, and they're thrown into the back of a police van, where they can hear the residents of the block cheering for Moses. All right, before we continue, I got to give a shout out to our sponsor of this week's episode, Skillshare. Skillshare is an online learning community where you can connect with other like-minded people and creatives and where you can explore projects that you are passionate about. This is why Skillshare is so cool because you can unleash your creativity you can pursue your passions right from the convenience of your own home. They offer thousands and thousands of classes for creative and curious people such as yourselves on topics like indie filmmaking, iPhone photography, editing, drone filming, classes on improving productivity, which I'll be honest, I need right now. I'm still in a little bit of a rut, so I need a little bit of a kick in the butt. So any anything that can motivate me that that I'll take it. <laughs> um, how to make videos for Instagram is another class that you can take. Things that the, on the intersection of art and activism, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So if you want to explore your creativity and connect with some cool people to help motivate you if you're in a rut like myself, get on one of those forums and maybe you can find some cool people so you can help collaborate together. Go check out Skillshare. Go to skillshare.com/smtm that's skillshare.com smtm, and you'll get a free trial of their premium membership. So to get a free trial of the premium membership, go to skillshare.com smtm, or of course there will be a link down below in the show notes. All right, now let's start peeling apart, attack the block. Um, so the last thing I said, I guess, at the end of First Impressions was that this was inspired by when joe cornish himself was mugged so what do we think about that experience like why is this film so immersive do you think there's something about empathy do you think rather than him being on a soapbox trying to give us a a film that is social commentary or that is a film about south london from the the view of an outsider like do you think there's something about his experience that makes this film immersive or is there just something else like why is this film so successful as like an immersive trip through a foreign territory
2: Well, i think there's something really beautiful that uh is sort of revealed by that story think of how many folks would go through that experience and have a really a really negative or reactionary response to it um and they would they would think of that experience as just an isolated incident and they would you know make all kinds of prescriptions about that person, uh, who had tried to mug them or whatever. And to come away from that and, and like interrogate that experience and try to see it from the other person's eyes and recognize that, you know, nobody, nobody endangers other people or potentially endangers themselves. Well, I won't say nobody. Um, but it, it's very unlikely that someone would commit petty crime without, uh, without some degree of necessity or something like that. And to come away from that and create something that is like, really, in, in some ways, you know, I don't want to get too schmaltzy about it, but it is very, very touching. And, and like you said, there's the, this, this movie kind of oozes empathy and understanding. And it, he does what, uh, what great actors always do, which is they, they never judge the characters that they're playing. And I, I think it's, it's pretty fair to say he never judges any of the characters he's writing. But uh, Michael, what do you got?
1: Well, I think it's like interesting. Uh, And this is, you know, there's like the uh, thing we get in a lot of films is this, uh, kind of Aristotelian reversal of recognition thing, where there's a character, and they think one way, or they perceive the world in one way, and something happens, and wow, they now see it differently. Something's happened where they're on the other side of that. It's great. Um, I think this film opens in a way that it has a similar effect on us, the viewer, because we watch the movie, and we see Jodie Whittaker getting out of the, the tube station, and we think, oh, this is a a... a um, a, a pretty woman. She's probably the main person in the movie. And Jodie Whittaker at that point had been on some TV shows in the UK, I think had more of a like star standing than many of the, the boys. And when we see these these boys show up with masks on, one might assume she is, is the protagonist. She is the character we should be empathizing with. These are the, the boys that are bothering her. But after the attempted burglary, she runs and we stay with them. And the film kind of forces us to be with those kids. And we slowly find ourselves going from like... That's so horrible. How could they do that to building empathy for a perspective that we maybe thought was going to be like the antagonistic force in the film? And I like what that does in disrupting expectations right off the bat. And I think it opens up the viewer
0: to the perspective of those kids in a way they might normally not be open. Yeah, that's a great cinematic trick just to kind of piggyback on that. It's almost like we, the audience, um, let's say a standard – British viewing audience are Jodie Whittaker and we're the ones who are afraid to walk through the block late at night and we see the kids and we try to do the thing where we try to cross the street but we don't get away and then we 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 get mugged and um, yeah we do get her back at the police station but not until we've already then started to be like oh wait a second we're gonna learn something about these kids in this extraordinary situation that they're thrown into right and that is really interesting it's almost like hey you the audience you're the one taking a journey through this neighborhood but guess what you can't leave you know you can't get out so quickly and then um and then somehow try to explain it away or like raymond was saying form some sort of potential reactionary opinion on the events that happened that is really interesting i I guess i hadn't without without trying to be like okay what is this film saying um, what is this film saying? <laughs> um what, what, can That's we... what I'm confused about, so I'm yeah. curious what everyone thinks. Yeah, so like, do we think the film is saying something, or do you think it's more just presenting something, and then we're able to kind of be like, oh, okay, this is actually a mirror held up to us, and it makes us feel something by kind of venturing into this foreign land and then being like, okay, well now maybe I can reformulate some opinions, which is nice because it isn't preachy, but rather it's just... It's just one holding up a mirror, maybe in the form of Jodie Whitaker, who is the character that has the big arc, right? She's the one that kind of starts. Whereas, I mean, I guess, does Boyega have an arc? I would say, is, I would say Moses does as yeah. well. Yeah. Is it is it maturity? Is it learning to kind of...
1: Is it like acceptance of consequences? In, in that, and this is a, a thing I'm kind of curious to talk with you all about because I, yeah. I worry about this interpretation in one sense because it's a little maybe too moralistic and interpretation coming from me, not the filmmakers. Yeah. But, you know, Boyega goes through this thing where, like, initially we see him mug someone. Then an animal at that point he thinks hurts him. And he thinks it's a dog. This dude is like, I'm going to fuck the dog up. I'm going to take my <laughs> friends and we're going to fuck up this yeah. animal. Right? That's how, like, gnarly yeah. and, and sort of petty he is. and And by the end of it, when he realizes – that, you know, the whatever, the alien ectoplasm on his body got his friends killed, has, has hurt people, that he has caused this harm. He takes that responsibility onto himself such that, you know, if you think he might die and he thinks he might die in protecting the people he loves and protecting his block. Um, now, I wonder then in that and this is what I'm kind of curious about. I hope this isn't jumping ahead, but I read a review that was from like 10 years old from the Atlantic. And the writer of that review had this take that said something like, um, Oh yeah, I have this note down. He said, you know, Moses realizes it was his own reckless actions that brought the creatures and are causing those around him to suffer. Um, The parallels to reality where seemingly meaningless acts of crime bring more brutal law enforcement, increase poverty, are blunt but touching. So the first part of that quote from that writer, like, okay, yeah, Moses accepts responsibility for his actions. The second one where the writer, and it's the writer Daniel D. Snyder, says where acts of crime bring more brutal law enforcement and increase poverty, that's where I was like, ugh, because that feels, like, blamey, like, saying, like, you know, and, and I was wondering, reading that review, I was like, is that, was that happening in the film? Is this just a kind of reactionary Writer projecting that onto it well on on the one hand uh, the the first part of
2: that statement, I would say, uh, having just watched the commentary, Joe Cornish even states pretty unequivocally he goes i he said in the commentary that he doesn't think the first alien ever would have plummeted out of the sky if Moses hadn't decided to mug somebody that to him that the movie is in a sense about a kind of not necessarily karmic retribution, but there is a karmic balancing that's happening where he is—he is learning. So it's the from opposite of save the
0: cat; it's kill the dog. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> yeah, it's kill, it's, it's kill the alien.
2: Um, and, and there, there is a sense that you get. Uh, he also said that he never wanted any of the other kids' deaths or endangerment to be attached to their actions. That that he did, like you said, uh, Michael. He he did need to understand by the end of it that there are consequences and um, maybe even in a broader sense that like doing the right thing is not always easy but it's always going to be right Um, and you know it's it's worth it to do the decent thing. I think the second part of that statement may be a little bit problematic but I mean I think in in a perfect world we could read that the second part of that statement exclusively in bad faith where he's he's saying oh it it always brings you know law enforcement we live in a very imperfect world where like the yeah. truth of the matter is whether or not it should bring more law enforcement you know I, I personally uh, believe that it shouldn't um, that is quite commonly the you know that, that is the response to crime is uh, further militarization and,
1: and funding of the police so you're saying like there's a way just that you're kind of opting forward to think this is good or a realist take where a take like that yeah. isn't to project it onto a, a granted a I haven't I haven't members, read yeah. the rest of that
2: review maybe the next sentence he says and that's the way it should
1: be <laughs> and I'll have to eat some crow but
2: I, I well the I writer
1: just, is Um, He's the president of the police union in Pittsburgh, so (laughs) I don't know if that changes anything. (laughs) A little movie movie, film criticism (laughs) op-ed. Yeah, yeah, uh, what do you think about uh, the the sort of moral and and, and, uh, aspects of the character's journeys here, Austin?
0: I mean, I feel like it's kind of part and parcel of of any sort of Western hero tale, right? Is There's always some Mm. sort of lesson that is learned and and even when it's done cleverly there's always some sort of moral tale that is told i think it's kind of we've woven into the fabric of of how we tell story and um if there is the moment where like if you read like i don't know john truby's anatomy of story and he has these the seven the seven essential kind of like Points that you have to hit. The final two for him are like the final battle, which you obviously get with Moses and the aliens. And it's a great final, like, that's a great, like, but before the final battle even happens, there's a moment of realization. And the moment of realization I wondered as you were talking, Michael, is it's almost like not self sacrifice. There's two ways that you could look at it. One is it's like, I'm gonna be the fucking hero. Which they did, they do want, they do talk about like fame a bit, you know, wanting notoriety, you know, somehow getting out of the block, maybe, Um, even if it's just in their own imagination. And so maybe he's fantasizing with that, but I don't think so. I do think it's much more grounded. I do think it's shit, you know, a, a couple of my friends are dead because of me. And there is a sense in which he's taking responsibility. Um, And once you start talking about, like, responsabilization, which is a term that academics like to use, now you're already in moralistic territory, right? And so he is taking responsibility, and it is a sort of, like, moral maturity in that to recognize that. Um, And I think that then what he does is he almost does, like, a Jesus thing where he's like, well, then I'm just going to sacrifice myself. And I think he kind of does accept his fate, so to speak, which again is kind of like a tragic acceptance, right? So there's some classic storytelling points that I think are really being covered here with the hero myth, with the acceptance of responsibility, with a moral tale, and then with a sort of tragic focus. And then what I wonder is, is at the end, for John Truby again, to kind of like go back to that reference that I mentioned, who wrote this book, Anatomy of Story, he's a famous script doctor. Um, The whole idea is, is that now the protagonist can never go back to the world that it once knew before because it's learned. You know, it's confronted his or her own moral failings and then the social failings of society. The world is now changed, and he or she, in this instance, he is now changed, and he can never go back. So that's what I wonder: is 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 there some sort of change, or? is it really more just that the world has changed like has he changed in the sense that he's matured and he realizes okay I can't engage in petty crime anymore and I can't do that like like somehow is he like like mad at himself for his previous hoodlum ways and he's like judging himself i don't know that that's the case because i don't think that this film is taking a stance on this is why you shouldn't be involved in petty crime if you are on the lower socioeconomic spectrum right so i don't think it's that it's something else and i'm not exactly sure what it is but there's something that he's learned but it's not like yeah it's not like a it's not like we don't judge who he was at the beginning of the film so much well, I think there's a, a
1: way in which yeah. like parts of who he was at the beginning of the film that we didn't see are revealed. I think there's this scene when they're in the the weed room, and I don't know if it's Moses or one of the other guys that says to the the Jodie Whittaker um, character Samantha, they they say to her like, "If we would have known you lived here, we never would have done that." Um, yeah. And you see that they have this like this like there's like a civic pride code. in a way. Yeah, yeah it's <laughs> like oh, like we assumed. You were from outside of here. We assumed you weren't like one of us. And it was interesting to see that there is that little bit of a code and maybe it's like an extending of that that's happening. But I I did think it was interesting that it slowly reveals like they already had this kind of code. Maybe it's about them extending that further or or seeing people from outside the block
0: as as having the uh,
1: the personhood of those from within the block because yeah, remember it they're disappointed of, when they oh.
0: mug her too and they're like oh she's a nurse she's got nothing on her well you know why are you mugging a nurse you know they don't make any money and it's just a real offhanded remark as they're walking away but yeah they're, and then you find out that she's not even a nurse she just graduated she's a trainee she like just graduated so um, yeah there is it is interesting that there is a code about how they're all in this together kind of thing you know what were you going to say Raymond
2: oh I was just going to say um, apropos of what, uh, what Michael was saying about the like attachment to this place more than anything as like its own type of character it just kind of reminded me of a, I don't know if y'all have seen the documentary about Cory Booker from like a decade ago I think it's called Street Fight and there's a, a scene in which he's holding kind of like a, a town hall at the apartment uh, the 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 apartment block or where, wherever he lives and all these people who have the opportunity to go and like ask him questions about policy and you know, his platform and everything. All they want to know is like, do you actually live here? Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) He he keeps saying like, you can go to my apartment, you can go into my house right now and see dirty dishes in the sink and blah, blah, blah. But it is one of those things that it, it it weirdly does kind of uh, come to the foreground in this movie, a a movie that I think is uh, in a certain way, very, very much about class um, and how, uh these the 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 gang of kids are perceived to be a certain class by how they present at the very beginning of the movie Samantha in much the same way is perceived to be of a certain class that she not necessarily is because she's she's a nurse oh she's just a nurse trainee oh she lives here like she's one of us and there is there is this kind of subtle commentary about um the the, the distinction of class and and how that uh creates a certain unity or solidarity let's
0: let's kind of Let's get deep into potentially one of the themes relating to class, race, um, social exclusion, etc. Here's a quote from Moses. It's probably like the quote that is the most heavy-handed quote in the film. He's sitting in the apartment after, um, after the chaos. This is in the middle of, of the madness. And he says, Government probably bred those things to kill black boys. First they sent in drugs then they sent guns and now they're sending in monsters to kill us they don't care man we ain't killing each other fast enough so they decided to speed up the process do you think that these aliens are a metaphor do you think that this is just uh, again what i what i when i first watched it i was like oh this is just his perspective which is so lovely because again it isn't like government officials are saying we don't know where these aliens come from we don't understand their intention and this is kind of this is how it is remember remember when Kyrie Irving said that the earth was flat and everyone was or he said that he didn't know and everyone kind of freaked out and then in the interview later he's like look man he's like I'm from a neighborhood where we just don't trust authority figures just because they say something I've been I've been misled too many times right by people to just say this is how things are this is how things are why am I just supposed to trust the people he's like I don't know uh, he's like, he's like it could be. And I, and I thought that was actually a really kind of poignant remark. And I feel like this is something similar. This is kind of him saying, look, man, from my perspective, this is how things are. They've tried all this shit constantly. In my experience, this is probably the feds, as they keep saying, um, just throwing something into our neighborhood to kill us faster because we're not doing it fast enough. So what do we think about this quote? Um, what does it mean? What's it saying? It, it, et it
2: kind kind of reminds me of, um, I think it was a click hole blurb that said something like, uh Q QAnon is uh, a conspiracy theory that holds that uh powerful elites are secretly evil instead of outwardly and openly evil. <laughs> and it does it does kind of dovetail nicely with that, this this notion that like well yeah, I mean what is what is the apply Occam's razor to this thing and what is more likely that our first interaction or our first known interaction with an alien life form would just hurdle out of the sky and land on our block or that, you know, uh, uh, marginalized communities would, uh, continue to be oppressed and purposefully marginalized by, uh, a, a relentless and, and uncaring government. Um, Michael, I, I know that you are, uh, the resident NBA enthusiast. I, I wonder if you have any, uh, Anything to say about the? uh, I remember Kyrie kind of recanting as well, saying that he he was like, "Look, I just went down a really bad YouTube wormhole." (laughs) (laughs) I I think I think he kind of he nixed it up to experience in the end. But uh, what do you got, Michael?
1: Well, we were going to introduce a new segment called the NBA Playoff Moment. So everyone, grab your. No kidding. Um, (laughs) But don't don't leave. Um, I mean, yeah, I think that the Kyrie example. I think, interesting in that way because he later was just kind of like, I don't know, like, I saw some stuff. I was just asking some questions. I don't know. Like, there's something about it that if we're really, really generous is, like, the Socratic, like, know what you don't know. And and Kyrie was just sort of like, listen, I don't know that. Like, I haven't been in space. I don't have this sort of knowledge. I'm not just going to assume things. Um, so, you know, that's kind of fun. But on the example in that great quote, I'm so glad you brought that one up, Austin. Um, I feel like there's, like, these two perspectives of that, right? So you have Moses who's like, of course, the shit is happening. Of course, after everything we deal with in this community, life get life gets even harder for us with with fucking aliens from the sky with blue teeth and and you know non reflective black fur or whatever. On the flip side, it's just another example of something that the police officers or whoever arresting them will never believe and will never understand. And it makes me think of like there's some points. Um, I forget which season. There's a few parts in like The Wire. where where what makes the show so brutal is you see how horrifically hard, like, especially, I think, season two or season three with the kids, you see how hard their lives are. And then how, from the perspective of, like, a cop or a teacher sometimes, it's like, well, work harder. Well, you know, you got to do this different. But it's like, no, 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 you don't get it. And there's that final scene, of course, where, like, he's he's getting arrested. All the aliens are dead, so there's no, like, evidence, really. No one's going to believe any of these people. And that's why I brought this up before. It reminds me of the... Um, alternate ending of Get Out, which is one of the most fucked up things oh, ever. Oh, it's yeah. Yeah, so we, we all know in Get Out, at the end, Lil Rel shows up, saves the day, the TSA doesn't mess around, um, I think Chris, the protagonist, gets away okay. One of the original endings, which they, they changed, uh, he gets arrested and goes to jail, and no one believes him, because why would anything that, that the, the protagonist of Get Out why, why? Why would a story ever be true? Yeah, well, someone was going to take your brain and put it in someone else's head. Okay, and in the same way, you're left in this film, and you were talking about like you know the the ending of it, Austin. That's sort of like the tragic element. I mean, I don't know what's going to happen. Probably not good. I guess we'll find out in this new version. But I do think there is a a realism there, and that reminder that no matter how hard it is for Moses and his friends, most people in authority are never going to see that. And then of course, in the Samantha character, we see someone that has that journey from. Beginning of the film, y'all are fucking monsters. By the end, she's sticking up for him,
0: you know, with authority figures. Mm. It is kind of perfect that it's 10 years later because I wonder if he's been in juvenile because he's 15 years old. So now if he's mid 20s. And maybe he's been in juvenile – I don't know what the plot is, um, but maybe he's the been in juvenile. The movie could p-
2: pick up like post-incarceration. That's he, right. You it, could go a thousand different – I'm really excited because, for it. Because no. if the
0: cops do hold him responsible – and obviously this is total speculation for people listening. But if the cops do um, – uh, if he is arrested, he wouldn't be tried as an adult. He's 15 years old. Is 16 – because I know 16 is age of consent in the UK. Is 16 when they would – is that like legal if you're British let us know is that when in, if in you're the comments a british down
1: below. teenager who commits crimes let <laughs> us know what happens. when you, yeah when do, will, when do you freak we, out for me when we were committing petty crimes 18 was the age when i was like oh yeah. no
0: longer can we uh, can we go do stupid shit but if for you if it's <laughs> well, 16 the other thing let is, us know
2: even if he is you know tried as an adult uh, it, who, who knows is the sentence for blowing up an apartment 10 years <laughs> like what is the is it disturbing yeah. of the piece will they make some joke about how it's just a slap on the wrist despite being like immensely devastating yeah. um no I think that uh kind of what y'all were talking about before about how no one is going to believe this kid it, it does come back to this thing just to just to sort of like Sidetrack to an aesthetic uh, kind of conversation really quickly. I think there are a lot of movies, especially in recent years, especially in genre, um, where the the '80s thing has been so done to death, and everyone is trying to like whether it's you know the John Carpenter fonts for their title cards or the synth heavy scores or just straight up '80s nostalgia with uh, all the fetishization of the wardrobes and stuff like that. In none of those movies or TV shows. Do the 80s vibe as well as this movie does with, for example, law enforcement being this sort of false friend. The way that like when the FBI shows up in Die Hard, they immediately make things much worse. Um, there, there is this, this really cool vibe with all of this that you don't, you don't see much in movies anymore. Uh, it has like the sort of Gremlins tone and the John Carpenter tone of, of, of being a movie that Michael, you, you said before we got on air that uh, because you don't do spooky things very well, but you can handle kind of jump scary things here and there. This is a great movie to introduce, not necessarily kids, but it's, it, I think, a great genre sort of bridge piece that can, can help bring. You know, younger folks into the conventions or the vernacular of science fiction and horror, and we just don't get a lot of those anymore. So I think it's really special. But sorry, that's my uh, rainbow no, no. aesthetic corner, really quick. No, no, this we is great because
0: because I do want to talk about the aesthetic too. Because this film, like I said, it, it, when I was giving my my first impressions and and talking about revisiting it, this film to me is more. And I hate I, I I just don't have the vocabulary to say it better. But it's more vibey. It's more Tony than I was expecting it to be, than anything, you know? It's not style to the neglect of substance or form to the neglect of content. It's actually its form in the service of content and vice versa, right? Like there's this wonderful kind of dual relation that it holds and it's the speed. It's got a very Edgar Wright kind of feel to it, how there's just no there's, – there's there's no fat on this at all. What is it, an hour and a half and it moves like... 88 minutes, yeah. Like that, if you can, that's... That's a fucking, that's a gift to cinema goers, right? Is like, here, just have this really tightly packed. You get in. Immediately, the aliens are there within the first five minutes. Like, there isn't like a world that's set up. Like, the way that they set up the world is a dark street and a woman walking at night and some teens with masks. And that's the world. And you're like, oh, okay, I know where we are. Like, like, I get it. Yeah, there's like a
1: quick overhead shot of London for like 30 seconds. You're like, cool, let's go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and I do think the soundtrack helps a lot. I think Basement Jacks did all the music for it, and and it keeps you going the whole time. You know, you talked about Raymond like doing the director's cut without the music. It has to be interesting to see that w- w- without, or without that sort of like yeah, without the dialogue. With, oh, yeah, without dialogue. There's... Sorry, sorry. Yeah, yeah. But I, I was really impressed by how much work the soundtrack does. And another thing that that Edgar Wright um, is very good at doing. Absolutely.
2: Yeah, a, a phenomenal visual storyteller, Edgar Wright. I think he's he, he's up there with any contemporary filmmaker.
0: Yeah, what was his role? Oh, in he this was film? he
2: was in a, uh, one of the executive producers, and he also knew Joe Cornish for a decade before uh, he made this. And in in Joe Cornish's own words, he said that Edgar Wright not only is a, a close friend but something of a mentor to him. And okay, um, they funny enough, Edgar Wright while working in. Uh, a producer capacity on this really just kind of helped get the ball rolling on the project because he was at the time finishing up Scott Pilgrim versus the world um, to the point where the two of them had these movies in like, neighboring editing suites when they were uh, putting the final the final touches on them so they would kind of like work on their movie then they'd go next door and give each other notes on this that and the other and i do think it is they they say it several times in the commentary that 88 minutes edgar wright at one point he says it's just with with no uh, uh, like elucidation whatsoever he goes 88 minutes is just the perfect runtime for a first feature (laughs) (laughs) and joe cornish just goes yeah i couldn't agree more
1: (laughs) i never thought about this before too isn't it the case that um edgar wright was supposed to uh either write or direct the first ant-man film and then cornish took over
2: no 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 uh peyton reed eventually um uh, directed that film
1: has cornish worked on a marvel movie or is about to Um, am i making this up i
2: don't know that he has i know that he's been i should know this this is literally my job on this podcast is to know stuff like this (laughs) um But the the Ant-Man saga is uh, sort of a tale of woes. I know that Edgar Wright was working on Ant-Man before the MCU was even a thing. Like, he had been pushing that boulder uphill forever because that that character means so much to him. And within just a few weeks that he was supposed to go into production on this script he had been developing for like a decade, they they came in with a
1: a, draft of, of the screenplay. Oh, okay. Oh, well, he probably co-wrote
2: Edgar Wright's with draft Edgar. of it. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um,
1: okay, cool. I knew he had something to do with it. Sorry for
0: distracting us. No, with it's that, all good. Everyone. Did did they in the commentary? Did they talk about some of the ex like the specific choices with regards to why the aliens looked the way they did? Did they did, absolutely what can yeah. can we talk about that a little bit? Because that. That was a really cool. Yeah. I, I love these fucking alien. I dog love. Things. I
2: love that like Vanta black surface and like yeah. the only three dimensional thing on them is the teeth. It's so cool. Um, but he said that it was it was largely inspired by Ralph Bakshi's Lord of the Rings adaptation, which, if you're familiar, is a uh, uh, an animation, uh, an, uh, uh, an animated adaptation from the '70s. I think it was '79, and uh, the Ring Wraiths in that are similar. That they would they would film. Uh, a live action reference and then they would animate over that and just the way that the ring wraiths are kind of flattened into this really sort of like hyper absorbent 2d sort of silhouettes no matter what kind of light they were in and stuff he just really liked that notion and they talked a lot about uh on the special features they talked a lot about how they achieved that in this movie
0: Hmm. How did they achieve that in this movie?
2: <laughs> well, I mean, through rotoscoping, the same way that Ralph Bakshi yeah. achieved it in the 70s. Cool. And that's one of the really, really cool things about this. On the very first episode of this show that I ever I ever appeared on, I, I went on a tangent about how great Total Recall's uh, uh, practical <laughs> effects are. And uh, they are. And this, this movie is kind of in, I don't necessarily know a similar vein, because its effects are being done and deployed in a very different way um but this is just a reminder of how effective simple tricks are that they they had a guy in this sort of like gorilla suit who was chasing these kids around and then in post they essentially just like they just went in and colored over him with just a flat black you know and what was so cool is they they said in a lot of the um A lot of the shots, they talk about how they wanted the 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 housing block to essentially be the Nostromo from Alien, where they're in the like very foggy hallways and they're kind of like downlit from those lights above or those windows above the doors, and there are some sequences where uh, the 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 aliens are kind of coming around corners and you see them backlit through the fog like something straight out of uh, straight out of Alien, and he said he was so surprised there were tons of shots like that where they thought, well, we're going to have to, you know, do a a pass on this and post and and touch up the effects and stuff. And he said there were a lot of times when the light just caught it perfectly and they didn't have to retouch it at all. And just, yeah, it it just speaks to to the power of what you can do when, when there is not only a plan for implementing these effects on the back end and, you know, in, in the good old fashioned, practical sense but also having something there for the actors to respond to react to in in, in, in you know live in front of the cameras it the, you really can't replace it you know no amount of tennis balls can bring that same same effect out of uh, the performers surrounding
1: it wow. yeah let's real, talk a like, little creativity bit creativity through constraints thing here sorry Austin, i no just no no yeah no that's so much keep going Oh no it's, it's just simply saying that it's a real example of like uh, awesome creativity being inspired by constraints low budget and then just doing incredible things with it—cliche thing to point out, but hearing that is just making me like this movie even more than I already did.
0: Let's talk a little bit about the performances and the actors. Um, as we said at the at the outset of the episode, most of these are you know just non-professional local teens that they brought on board. I think John Boyega was an actor, right? But the rest of the cast were not. Is that correct? Or was even he a 1st time? I think I read it was a lot of kids from, like, community
1: theater programs in London. So they were, like, just truly kids from neighborhoods like that. And they were in, like, youth theater. Yeah, they they said
2: pretty much every kid that was interviewed on the special features said that they had an acting teacher or an acting coach or at least a director that had brought them this casting notice because they just did an open call for a lot of these roles i think they they said they read upwards of 17 or 1800 kids
0: wow i personally really love the two young ones too that are like (laughs) wait what like so funny 9 and 6 or whatever and it's so cute because <laughs> you have like these these age differences you've got Jody who's what early 20s and then you've got uh the teens who are just barely teenager let's say 13 to 15 and then you've got these other kids and so you get Boyega's kind of maturity. He wants to be older than he looks. He's like very proud of that fact. Um, but then you're also like, but you're just a fucking kid. But then, of course, they're constantly talking to the kids. And they're like, no, you guys are just kids. Like, you're too young. And then those kids, they want to be old because they want to be cool like the, yeah. the rest, the other kids in the gang. Well, and so then there's, there's
1: like the gang leader, weird rapper, weed kingpin guy. Hi-hats. Hi-hats. Hi, sorry, who treats, you know, Boyega and the guys like just And what is he idiots. mid, he's like, like
0: mid-twenties probably or something like that. Sure, yeah.
2: Yeah. But it is, it is interesting how like the, the, the sort of like the wake trail of influence. Sort yeah, of, yeah, exactly. back through the, you know, the age ranges that like these kids do like look up to other kids. It's like the John Mulaney bit about uh, hiring a horse to watch a dog or whatever. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Yeah, exactly. And it's really kind of well done how you're kind of given and it's never even really commented on but you're kind of given a shot into like three generations that are kind of like all living within this within this place. Um, so yeah. yeah. And you, but can what do you see think?
2: how like some of the more unsavory aspects of what of what some of these kids get involved in become like cyclical and self-sustaining. Exactly. It is exactly. I think a pretty a pretty uh, I would say subtle but conscious critique of uh, a, a lot of like systemic class issues
0: it's almost like a faded deterministic logic that oh these young six-year-olds are going to be like high hats right eventually they're going to become the teenage uh, uh gangsters and then they're going to go and then they're they're going to end up like like that's that's where they're going to Un- go
2: unless they're unless their intermediary influence being moses finds a a, a way to divert from that path you know to
1: sort of part a red sea of of bad influence and take them th- to a land of milk honey and
0: and i don't know like uni funding or something i was gonna say fireworks <laughs> oh yeah fireworks, fireworks sorry okay um, so last yeah. thing let's do this this is a very simple question but like why does this film work so well we've all spoken quite highly about this film and we've talked about the aesthetic the energy the kind of interesting social commentary if we could encapsulate it in just a, a soundbite like why does this film work
1: i'll say something really simple that you guys say smart stuff this movie um builds a clear and specific world upon which it lays a very um Simple and executable premise, which
0: is which is great. I think because we have so many people who write to us that are like aspiring filmmakers too, and I love what you said that that they that Edgar Wright and Joe Cornish in the commentary said eighty eight minutes is the perfect length for a first feature <laughs> because I've been to so many film festivals and you get these like these these young people i'm going to say young dudes in particular who have these like 3 hour epics that are inspired by Malik and inspired by tarkovsky cramming every <laughs> idea and influence they ever had <laughs> yeah and i get it and i and i get it like like i i'm loquacious so just imagine if i was making a feature it would be a 5 hour fucking uh it would be a bellatar film um so like i i get it but there is something lovely about being able to just tight it tighten something up in this really neat package that you can give to people
2: yeah. yeah i also think there is um michael basically took my answer i think he keeps it simple oh, no. and that's <laughs> no 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 i, I mean i th- i think that's a testament to the the value of, of simplicity a lot of the times especially in such a a, a plot driven or genre specific script but i would also uh, say on top of that is that I kind of touched on this before that he never he never judges the characters he's writing not only that but he like he really entrenched himself in in a lot of these communities and like would just hang around kids and like listen to the way that they talked and he you know he it reminds me of early spielberg in a way like you know some of the great stuff about like et is that the camera is always on the level of the children the camera literally never looks down on the children in that movie Um, and I, I think there's something to that, that he, you know, he put in the effort and it it comes back to that, uh, that old adage of like, there is, uh, there, there's nothing more universal than the specific, you know, if you can, if you can really illuminate the inner lives of people, you can't help but be kind of, um, uh, kind of engrossing. Um, and I think, yeah, I think the script... Yeah, the script is so simple, uh, but also um, so so deeply empathetic. It's it's just great work.
0: That's a perfect way to kind of wrap up the discussion of Attack the Block. Um, yeah, so definitely check out this film. Uh, it's fantastic. It's fun. It's energetic. And it'll make you think a little too, which is always, I think, a plus when you're talking about a film. So now let's jump into the mailbag. We got an onslaught of voicemails and emails all wanting to talk about the Bo Burnham Inside episode. So if you want to continue to contribute to conversations about Inside, you can keep emailing us and uh, calling us about that. Or if you want to talk about Attack the Block or anything else in our back catalog, you can drop us a voicemail at 1-213-534-8807. That's one So I didn't get a name on this uh, voicemail, so we'll just say it's anonymous unless uh, they say it and I just didn't pick up on it. But has has um, some thoughts about inside. So let's go ahead and roll that first voicemail.
3: All right, guys. So I'm doing dishes by hearing out on Insight. So I think Insight's a very interesting piece, and I think the reason like, you all were talking about it during the podcast and you were trying to figure out why exactly it was so big, uh, you all explored the option that it might just be a Zoomer mentality of, like, maybe first philosophy class, basically. But I think that's a misunderstanding of why it's so big. Bo Burnham has always been, like, a, I would say a, a leader in the public space for having, like, critical thought in his comedy. And the fact of the matter is, is that when he produces okay. content, it is always to the highest quality. You can see it in all his acts uh, from, I believe, uh, his second special. He had full sections of uh, recorded audio that would play only at specific times, set up where he would set up the lights, do everything. So the entire show is intentional. From beginning to end, every light, every prop, I have no doubt that it is all set up with intention.
2: Uh, I don't know. You guys uh, You guys were steering the ship last week. I couldn't attend. So what do you think?
1: Well, it makes me think of, I went and rewatched his earlier specials after talking about Inside. Um, and for anyone who was mad at me because they thought like I didn't like it enough, I think I like it more now. So get less mad at me, please. But um, there's a bit I think it's in Make Happy where he knocks a water bottle over <laughs> and acts like it's an accident, and then immediately a song plays about how that was all intentional and you fell for it. And life is a lie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and like, yeah. And he does that. And he, there's a thing in both of the specials, both in Make Happy and in what where early on he does something, reveals that you thought it was a trick and it was intentional, and that, yeah, nothing's real. So I think, like, I kind of looked back at Inside then with those moments as kind of like the Rosetta Stone um, for interpreting stuff, and it really made me think of it differently, uh, of how intentional, how specific he is, how everything's a choice.
2: And I think there is a a large degree to which I think so many folks have been putting the, the sort of restrictions of this special first in their discussion of it like they've taken that context and made it into the content and i don't necessarily think that's fair because that implies that it was sort of unplanned or spur of the moment you know obviously it wasn't planned in the sense that he had been working on this for like two or three years and then uh just waiting for a pandemic to strike or whatever but i do think that he was you know wrestling with some big ideas maybe he doesn't always hit the mark right on the uh, right on the nose um, but there is th- there is definitely some authorial intent behind it. You know, when, for example, there's that moment I had, uh, I had mentioned in our conversation before, Michael, where he's sort of lying on the ground and just free associating about the, the perils of social media. And that's kind of what it comes off as. But then you realize, like, oh, the camera is suspended above him in a pretty tricky composition. And he has a very balanced frame with, like, a set of headphones right here and a mixer right here. It's like... It's a pretty good composition. Like you can spiral a golden <laughs> ratio right off of his nose. And <laughs> in the frame, you know, there there is that that aspect of it that if you if you engage with the work as a, an intentional piece of art where everything that is inside the frame and outside the frame is either there or not for a reason, I think you, you it, it would open the discussion up a little bit more to the intent rather than just like. Oh, the primal scream of it all. You know, I, I for one think it is uh, something of a natural progression of his onstage persona, um, at least given the circumstances.
0: Yeah, and I wonder what it says about us that we rush so quickly, oftentimes, to look for that, to try to find the distinction between oh, is this is this real? Is this authentic, or was this staged? What are we looking for in that question? That's what I'm more interested in. And does that somehow invalidate what he's saying? Like, if I rehearse the thoughts in my head, but yet I just set up a camera and I'm like, well, I'm just going to record what comes out at a given moment, uh, is it somehow more authentic? Because I didn't say, okay, I'm going to sit down in this moment and record it with this screen composition. And maybe in post, he adjusts the frame to make it so that it has that golden ratio aspect that you're talking about, right? So, so like, is that more authentic? Or maybe if I'm just sitting there, stream of consciousness, and I'm writing, why is that more supposedly primal in in my expression? And why is that something that people would gravitate to? Not that it shouldn't be. I'm not asking that as a rhetorical question. I'm asking that seriously. Like, what is it that, that elicits that kind of response? And I wonder if there's something that people are searching for and they look for like a voice of authenticity and then when they feel like it's manicured for them it just feels like spin like political spin or social spin and because we're so jaded and spurned by the manicured media stories that we're fed all the time that we want somebody to just fucking break out of that and be like no you know like this, this is it and then so I think if people are expecting that especially in a commentary that is critiquing that kind of fabricated and manicured media landscape then we are like no but therefore it can't it can't be rehearsed right like it has to be real and i'm like but 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 what if i sit here in my room late at night and i rehearse thoughts a thousand times in my head which i've done about what to think about a particular social situation or or a social artifact like it am i not rehearsing am i not staging is that
1: well, and I think that's something that Burnham's really getting at, right? With like the social media stuff, um, and I think he says this in his in special what that like people in the audience view him as a performer, but he's like, we are all performing via social media constantly. And the same moment you're you're referring to Raymond, where he kind of says like, you know, should we exploit the neurochemical drama of kids so Silicon Valley uh, Silicon Valley companies can make money? Like. Everything is tied into this logic of performance and authenticity. And at times it's like performing authenticity is, is what gets people, um, you know, the, the, the biggest amount of like clout or attention. And we don't know anymore. And I think because we don't know, uh, we, we, we want to hold on to something real. And I think if we think something real, if we think it's real and we find out it might not be, it like hurts people's feelings. They feel. Yeah. Cool. And I think there's yes. some people whose reaction to inside is sort of like, I think they dislike it because they felt so close to feeling something. But then they mm. thought, like, who are you to do this to me, Bo Burnham? Who are you to perform this sort of thing? Which then gets, gets back to your point, Austin. Like, does that mean it's not authentic? Does that mean he doesn't really think those things? Does it mean that he hasn't really felt those things? Like, if he cries and it's fake on camera, does that negate the fact that maybe that morning he was also crying? I don't know. I don't know the answers that, to this. But That draws
2: yeah. into question the the authenticity of any art. I mean, and that's that's a huge conversation. Like, if so, let's get into that. Yeah, right now. so we have th- the second hour left. of our we'll program begins <laughs> now. You know, but I think I think there is a degree to which some folks, when they when they watch a movie and they get swept up in a moment and they cry along with the characters, like people deep down in their heart, they know that you know, uh, Natalie Portman isn't really like she's she's affecting an emotional facsimile, like for. For their own catharsis, and you know, it's like that's literally any art, and I, I I love that he does not feel um, at the risk of sounding kind of punny. He doesn't feel confined uh, by the, the the expectations of the comedy special as a as a genre or as a format. That he he can have those more confessional moments or more authentic moments. That. You take a step back from and say, okay, but is this Bo Burnham or is this Bo Burnham in scare quotes? You know, like it, there, there, there is a, a lot of, uh, a, a lot to chew on, I think. Uh, so Michael not, not and I,
0: special. Michael and I used to teach at, uh, uh, the same university when we were in grad school together. And do you remember the essay by Lu, uh, by Borges called Borges and I, that we assigned to, um, it was the metaphysics class, like Descartes thought in reality class. Yeah. So I, don't, there's the, I don't remember it. Man. There's this amazing – just speaking on this, there's this amazing little essay by Jorge Luis Borges called Borges and I. And I would uh-huh. just it's, – it's like half a page. So I would recommend if you're listening, it's B-O-R-G-E-S. Oh, okay, can, yeah, it's B-O-R-G-E-S, Borges and I. And he talks about this, how there's a distinction between I – and the Borges, and he's like, the Borges is receiving mail, the Borges is doing these things, and then I continue to give myself over to Borges, and he's like, I don't know if it's me or Borges, and there's this really lovely kind of back and forth, this relationship between kind of like the abstract entity that you were just saying, is it Bo Burnham in scare quotes, or is it Bo Burnham the eye, and there's this really, yeah, it's a really kind of, I think, difficult and and kind of fraught terrain that artists and, um, and whatnot have always sort of explored, so... Definitely check that out if people are listening. Okay, we have to wrap up the episode there. Um, we'll get into more of the inside stuff, I'm sure, next week with the mailbag because we did. We got about uh, uh, like almost like a, a, a ten or so emails all asking similar questions around this the special. So we'll we'll talk a little bit more about that in the Unless mailbag the segment. Unless the attack, the block
2: stands,
1: just melt the phones, man.
0: <laughs> just, just <laughs> which just melt down that switchboard, which is just fine,
1: which is more than there.
0: fine. Movies at Wisecrack, tell us all about it. That's right. Go ahead. Here, plug plug the email because I didn't plug the email, Michael. Just so people people know. I was being a
1: company man. I just, I noticed where you did, and I was like, God, be a company man. God, give me an email. <laughs> movies at wisecrack co. Everyone, if any of the higher ups are watching, movies at wisecrack co. Um, but you really nailed the you nailed the phone number though. That was awesome.
0: Let's get out of here. Where can people find you on the internet, Michael?
1: Uh, Michael O Burns on most social media stuff. Come say hi. And Raymond?
2: Uh, Yeah, you can find me on Twitter and Letterboxd. I'm at Crematoria. And uh, since I didn't get to do last week's episode about Inside with these uh, wonderful gentlemen, I wrote a, a slightly more extensive review of it on my Letterboxd in case anyone was interested.
0: And if you want, you can check me out on Twitter, Austin underscore Hayden, Insta a u s underscore h a y. I forget. I got to plug my TikTok too. I got a TikTok. It's Austin dot Hayden. Um, I talk about like philosophy and religion and Christianity. I've had a couple videos that have kind of popped pretty hard about my experience as a post-evangelical. Um, that uh, that a lot of people found that resonated with them. So check that out if you're kind of struggling in the post-Christian world and you're looking for voices. There's actually a really good kind of deconstruction aspect of tiktok a lot of a lot of good voices out there giving people um you know kind of like queer pastors and um a lot of like critical race theory scholars and things like that that are looking at christianity from uh, through a critical lens so if that's your vibe if you need some support if you're dealing with like a post-christian landscape thing come find me and then i can kind of like direct you to other people on tiktok too that are kind of sharing their experiences aftermath you could um, be
1: their moses you could be their moses of sorts on i want to hey just be their didn't. heretical hey jesus didn't. the heretical hey jesus didn't.
0: yeah hey that's that's it. That's it. Um, yeah, send us out of here, Raymond. Oh, goodbye from a
2: housing block in South London. It's Show Me the Moses.
1: <laughs> really like that.